My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head 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 Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me as a guest is Peter Desberg. Hello, Peter. Hello. Thank you for being here. My absolute pleasure. Peter is actually a returning guest, but it's been so long that we're going to introduce him to you all over again. Uh, Peter Desberg is actually a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in the area of stage fright, working with many top stand-up comedians who are regularly confronted with massive cases of flop sweat. We, we should, we've got to have you on just to talk about stage fright. You know that. Well, let me tell you that I work with an awful lot of writers with writer's block. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. We have to hit that by the end of the show. But that's not what we're here to talk about. You know, I've never refused you anything. Ah, this is true, Peter. This is why I love you so much. Um, Peter has also done extensive research on the psychology of humor and is a frequent consultant to business presenters on how to use humor persuasively. And for a decade, he hosted a cable TV show about technology. And Peter's extensive academic research on the psychology of humor has significantly reduced the number of party invitations he's received over the years. Wait a minute. This bio is is not helping me. I'm going to add to it that he has actually authored six joke books along with 16 other non-humorous titles. And I also uh, skipped over the fact that he was also a professor at Cal State University, Dominguez Hills, for years. Yes? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And our most recent joke book is called The Bad Sex Manual. Oh, that's your most recent joke book? Yes. That's not a joke. It's a bad sex manual. Um, the fellow who, uh, who wrote Friday the 13th, part six, and directed it was my co-writer. Really? Tom McLaughlin, yes. And we had a blast. It's a very funny book. I, I would ask you to tell, tell me a bad a sex joke right now, but we can't because this is, oh, this no, is no, a, no. We, we can't say the F word kind of show, you, you know? And, this is a promise. You and I will never have bad sex. Oh, Peter. <laughs> so, that's, a, that's, that's a better promise that I've gotten from a lot of people. And by a lot, I just mean a few. Maybe one. Okay. So Peter is here to talk about his latest book, which is called Now That's Funny. And this was co-authored with Jeffrey Davis. And Jeffrey Davis is also a funny guy like you. Uh, My computer just shut down. So you tell us a little bit about Jeffrey and some of his background. Absolutely. Um, Jeffrey comes from a comedy family. His his father was the, uh, the showrunner for I Dream of Jeannie and The Odd Couple. He grew up in the business. He's currently the, the chair of screenwriting at LMU, um, Loyola Marymount University. And he's the really clever guy here, so everything I say, imagine it being funnier and way more intuitive, and <laughs> you get a sense of what you'll be getting here today. Okay, Peter. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll give you a pass on that. Um, but let's talk about Now That's Funny. It is an intimate look into the minds of 24 of Hollywood's funniest comedy writers from movies and TV shows like Saturday Night Live, 
Frasier, The Simpsons, Everybody Loves Raymond, Monk, Modern Family, The Honeymooners, Cheers, Home Improvement, and many more. So you said an intimate look into the minds of these comedy writers. Tell me what you mean by that. Jeffrey and I have both been writing comedy forever, and we were interested in talking to some of the best comic writers basically about their process. The problem you run into is when you ask somebody to describe their process, they may be telling you very accurately, they may be romanticizing it, they may be telling you how they wish they wrote, you don't know. There's a great phrase, the highest form of fiction is the autobiography. So what we did instead was we wrote a short, generic comedy premise. We gave it to each of these incredible writers and said, develop it. Let us watch you do it. What was the comedy premise? A woman in her 50s is living a very comfortable life, and all of a sudden her husband dies. She thinks she's well taken care of, didn't realize they spent everything they made, and so all of a sudden here's a woman with no skills, has never worked, thinking she was well provided for, nothing. So calls up her daughter who lives in New York, young corporate type, and says, I'm moving in with you. And go. <laughs> well, the, I'll tell you one of the things that really surprised us, because as we go along, I'll tell you more and more about the people, but these were all show creators, showrunners, really top writers in some of the best rooms, great movie writers. Every one of them told us they were kind of nervous going through the interview. Why? Well, imagine you have one shot, you're doing it in real time, and then it's going to be compared to everybody else, all your top peers. Ah. Boy, you know, could I have been funnier? Could I have done better there? I mean, Did they have to brainstorm on the spot, like hearing the idea cold, like you just said on the show? Exactly. We handed them a paper with the premise. Wow. It was a little more complicated, but basically you got the essence of it, and they just started. And, it, and they were so good that they, they all did it. And the weird thing is, there was, there was a terrible old episode of I Love Lucy, where Lucy and Ethel are angry at each other, and they end up at the same swanky party wearing the same dress. Absolute anathema to any woman. And we had this paranoid fear that that's what's going to happen. They're all going to come up with the same story. And there's absolutely no relationship with anybody's stories. They took it to unfathomably, unfathomable places. <laughs> but let me try and give you, you know, the way I characterize the book when I describe it for people. I remember years ago, I was in Paris at the Picasso Museum. And I'm, I'm looking at this incredible stuff. I was a fan. And I thought, what would you give to have been sitting next to Pablo as he was doing a still life and you were watching him do it. And I said, what we did in this book is imagine not only doing that, but creating the same still life and giving it to Cezanne and Matisse and Renoir and Manet, and you get to compare how they did it. And they're all doing it while you're watching. We were in the room. It's like you're looking into their ear at their brain being creative. So it was an amazing... And what we tried to do... Um, a, a couple of the, we had like four or five teams, the, you know, um, but most of them were solo. And so we tried to create in, during the interview a feel of being in a room. So 
Uh, if they'd slow down a little, you know, we'd ask them a question or do something, we'd all share in the laughs, we'd share ideas back and forth, so enough to really get the feeling of, it wasn't just like, hey, the light's shining and you come up with something, you better go fast and do it. So we kept the feeling of the room very, very light, and it was amazing what these people came up with. So tell me about some of the different stamps that these different showrunners and writers had on their uh, on this one idea. Well, for, for openers, um, let me tell you a, a finding, and I, I promise to, to answer your question in a sec, but I'm thinking of running for politics, so I have to learn how to divert. Excellent. Um, the, the pivot. <laughs> well done. I saw her this morning on TV. <laughs> Kellyanne. Oh, did you? <laughs> the queen of the pivot. Um, <laughs> One of the things that was really, really cool is that a lot of these folks not only developed the premise right there in real time, but they narrated as they did it. Huh. So you literally saw the mind working. And when Jeffrey and I first sat down and thought about it, we started speculating, are these guys going to go more for story or for character? Hmm. The answer, neither. Conflict. Interesting. They went right to conflict. So... Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, we interviewed a fellow named uh, Walt Bennett. Uh, it's a bad thing to say now, but uh, he was one of the writers on The Cosby Show. Okay. But that was when The Cosby Show was still great. The Cosby then, so. Show was a great <laughs> show. Exactly. Exactly. It was great. Exactly. Um, and he apparently never drugged any of his uh, writers. But so. That's good to know. <laughs> but, so Walt was there, and he's saying, okay, so here's a woman about to visit her daughter. So typically... When somebody's coming to visit you, it's like, hey, I'll be there Tuesday at 7. Mm-hmm. So he said, so I can create a lot of conflict by having her drop in unannounced. Nice. I mean, you know, we're all afraid of a pop-in anyway, but how much worse when somebody coming to stay? And then he says, okay, so if she's going to come in unannounced, what would be the worst time to possibly come in? So, of course, it's in the afternoon, the boyfriend's there, they're in the bedroom, and knock on the door. They're saying, okay, now how can we make that even worse? So typically you think, oh, somebody's coming over to visit. They got their two suitcases. She's living in a little efficiency apartment in New York. She's got a moving van outside, and the whole house is there. And right behind her is a cousin bringing up a huge couch that will barely get through the door. So each way through we're saying, how can I make this worse? How can I make it, you know, how can I really tweak this and really make them go crazy? But I also love the fact that you're dealing with... The, the grounded real life ways things would be worse. What's the worst time? What's the piece of furniture? Exactly. Whatever's right around you, it's not like creating a, an obstacle that's out of thin air. We, we worked with a, a writer named uh, Dan O'Shannon who goes back to, he wrote on uh, Cheers, he wrote on Frasier, uh, Modern Family, he, he uh, produced a lot of the episodes of Modern Family. And all the, way through, all the way through his interview, he's apologizing to us, saying, as I'm creating this stuff, I know it's supposed to be funny, but I'm just telling you the conflicts. And I can see where the funny part is going to come, but I'm not telling you that. I'm just setting it up. And the minute we said, well, we'll just make one of them pay off, and next thing, you know, we're, we're on the floor laughing, and, you know, the, the you know, mother and daughter are pulling each other's hair and they're screaming at each other on the floor and stuff. But he set it up so beautifully. So it's really the it's really the 
it's the execution of the conflict where the where the comedy comes in, how people react to it, what they do in reaction to it, what the, the action that they take. Absolutely. Now, interestingly, we interviewed Leonard Stern, one of the two writers, unfortunately, that have passed. Uh, Leonard Stern, again, goes back to the Honeymooners. Um, he was one of the co-writers in the original uh, Get Smart movie. I mean, he's, the guy's amazing. He, he created Mad Libs with Roger Price, an amazing history. And he said... All of my comedy is based on conflict, but never hostility. All my conflicts come out of love. And again, I thought that first thing popped in my head. This must be I Love Lucy Day. But you know, here was a, a show where there was conflict every week from people who really liked each other. And basically it was, well, I know what you should be doing. And they think, no, I, I think I should be doing this. No, you should be doing this. Boom, clash. I remember an old comedy writer once telling me, you know, we have, you know, we hope that we have all this creativity and, and intuition, but we have a bag of tricks as comedy writers. So if I need a laugh and I can't think of anything else, I make the phone ring. Huh. And the busier you are when the phone rings, the funnier it's going to be. So you come into to the house with two bags of groceries, the phone rings, you're going to get a laugh. If it's three bags and you're delicately balancing them and things are tipping, it's going to be funnier. And the worse the situation is, the bigger the laugh, plus who should be at the other end? Like the the biggest easy laugh, it's your mother. (laughs) And she's saying, have you given up this writing stuff and thought about going back to pharmacy school? so, so, so again, we're talking conflict, right? Because that ringing phone that wants your attention has an agenda on the other end of it that's pulling at you. You have an agenda of finishing whatever you're in the middle of doing, right? And these, these competing agendas create conflict, but that's funny as we're watching people juggle that. Now, you asked for an example or two. Uh, I'll give you one of my favorites. Um, we interviewed a fellow named Bob Meyer, who was a huge list of credits, um, he was a showrunner for Roseanne. He did a whole bunch of amazing stuff. And so we gave him the, the premise. It took him like five or six minutes, and he got like a perfect network TV sitcom episode. Just boom, just nailed it. So we said, uh, hey, Bob, um, could you make it a little darker? Ooh. And he got this mischievous look on his face and picture somebody with their hand on a big dial. And he says, how dark do you want? <laughs> and so all of a sudden, he took the young girl and he said, I'm going to give her a different occupation. I'm going to make her a private investigator with a serious drug habit. Uh, interesting. And all the way through, he's saying, the drug habit makes her an underdog and we like underdogs. And she's really pretty and we like pretty people. And so he's setting this whole thing up. And then he sets up a situation where she's got the big case, she's about to crack it, she's meeting with Deep Throat, who's going to give her all the information. She runs back to her apartment for a minute to change, really to snort a couple of lines of coke, and meet this guy for this crucial meeting and intervention. Ah, by her mother. (laughs) Everybody. Ah. Everybody she knows is there to help her with her drug habit. Excellent. So again... These, these incredible things, it's a little stronger than a, a ringing phone, but same concept. So, so, you know, a lot of these, the people you interviewed, come from this 
the golden age of comedy, right? Or, or well, were influenced well, nice by they, the golden they, age of comedy. They work all the way through. Uh-huh. And it's like a clear continuum. Every decade is represented. But what you just talked about is, I think, very much where half hour is right now, Absolutely. right? How can you make it darker, right? And it's interesting that his, his answer of, well, we'll give her an addiction that makes her an underdog and makes her likable is is interesting because that's how we're approaching likability right now in terms of empathy. Some people are scared to go there because they're like, oh, no, that makes her unlikable. It's like, no, that makes her us, right? Absolutely. We all have our, our secrets, our addictions. Our- you, know, you have to give her some nice qualities that make her likable, but then she's got to have a handicap. She's got to have something that makes you worry about her. Mm-hmm. Some kind of flaw that is also going to complicate things. And you can still make that funny because complication, conflict is funny. And if you make that conflict serious enough and dangerous enough, then you're waiting every second you're on pins and needles because what's going to happen to her? So I, I'm just curious about who, which writers were, would you say, so completely opposite in their take on this particular premise that well, you found interesting? Well, here's one of the nice things. The instructions we gave them were, here's the premise, do anything you want with it, change it any way you want, we don't care. You know, besides, if we gave you rules, you wouldn't follow them anyway. You're comedy writers, you're not accountants. So they took great liberties. So, for example, several of the people, uh, several of the, the, the guys said, you know what, mother, daughter, I, I'm sorry, I've never been either, but I could sure do fathers and sons. Huh. So they took it as fathers and sons. And I'm <laughs> we, we interviewed two guys, uh, um, Ken Dario and Cinco Paul. They, um, they wrote... Uh, um, I'm forgetting most of it, but uh, they wrote Dinner for Schmucks. They wrote um, Bubble Boy. <laughs> they tell us a great story. Um, they, uh, they took the treatment for Bubble Boy, and they gave it to a producer, and he started giving them notes. And the first note he gave them was, um, I really like your project, uh, but do we have to keep the bubble? Can we lose it by the first act? And Ken leaned over to Cinco and whispered, We can call it Boy. <laughs> <laughs> but they immediately took the story and they made the dad, the older dad, um, be an old jingle writer. And his son was in the advertising business and dad was kind of hanging around with him because he's an old dad now, he's out of the business. And, of course, the kid starts having problems. Dad tries to help and you don't want your dad to help because this is the modern advertising world and what do you know, dad? You were back with Plop Plop Fizz Fizz. And, but the old guy's likable, so anytime there's a piano around, he's down piano, and he's playing all these old jingles he wrote and stuff. And then he ends up, of course, saving the kid. And, but they took it in such interesting places. Right, right. We had um, uh, one person make the, uh, the mom a guy who goes after her boyfriend. Um, so many different places. That we had another guy that, uh, um, that made... Um, they, they brought in a character, a Bernie Madoff character that the mom eventually exposed. I mean, they took it in places you wouldn't believe they could go. Now, do you think that, that the different showrunners and different writers that you talk to, their approach to story was indicative of the times in which they were writing? 
or do you think that it was just more uh, showing sort of their different sensibilities, that it wasn't locked in a particular style of comedy? They, there was, I mean, no two stories are alike. Uh, we never found any particular trend in terms of reflecting times. And one of the interesting things, um, if you remember the Dick Van Dyke show mm-hmm. many, many years ago, one of the clever moves that Carl Reiner came up with was, let's not do anything that indicates time and dates the show. Interesting. So you could watch that show today, it still looks fresh. And it's amazing because they didn't use current events, they try to stay away from you know, particular products that define the time, and these stories are kind of, they're limitless, they're endless, they're, they're timeless. I'm reading a really interesting book. Um, it's called something like Seven Plots. And there's lots of books that say, you know, there's only 12 characters. Or, you know, but this is written by a British scholar. It's like 800 pages long. Wow. And it's encyclopedic. It's incredible. But he has this view. You can edit this out, but let me be pedantic for a moment. Go for it. Um, Noam Chomsky revolutionized linguistics. And... He, Linguists used to study what's the structure of language, how does it work, and Noam Chomsky said, no, linguistics reflects thought and the brain. Like every language in the world has a subject-verb-object structure. There's a reason for that, because that's the way the brain processes information. This guy's point of view is the reason there's only seven plots is we organize things in terms of story and there's only seven basic kinds of story. And he, was, he starts out in the beginning saying, um, you know, you're reading uh, about Gilgamesh, you're reading Beowulf, then you read Jaws, and it's the same story. And he breaks it down, and you see all the same points. And it's, it's a very sophisticated book, but the, the main thesis is that story's constructed in a certain way, and we're processing it as humans, and getting it into, if we want to make it interesting, we have to have certain plot points. Um, you know, if I have a monster story, then um, I have to have a situation where we hear a little bit about this monster. We don't see him right away. And then we have a hero that's going to be somehow put in a position he didn't want to be in, where he's got to go fight it. And then later, it looks like he's going to do really well. And then all of a sudden, everything is lost. And then, you know, and so these things are really, really basic. And what we're finding out more and more is that humans like story way more than anything. If you want people to remember things, you know, uh, again, being a boring psychology professor, I found when I wanted students to understand a concept, I built it into an example or a story. Now, there's, there has been a 10-year debate on this show and, uh, and longer in the writing world, right? When we talk about these patterns with story, in your case, you're saying just so psychologically, we just sort of go there. Um, are we also uh, encouraging people toward formula? So w- what would you say in, in rebuttal? Well, I think, first of all, you've got to, you're asking a chicken and egg question. Uh-huh. Did the formula come out and that's how we're creating stories or is there something about the way we process information in a very elemental way 
that always comes out in these forms. Interesting. And that's the way I'm looking at it now after reading this guy's book. I, I have persuasive. to say, I've always kind of looked at it that way, too, that, that we, we just naturally, to keep ourselves from being bored, we, we, we pivot, we turn, we, we twist, we, we throw in obstacles, but we tend to do it on a timing-wise at these when we're feeling instinctively like it should happen. And instinctively, a lot of people have had, they basically had the same instincts, you know? And it, yep. it is, it is interesting just to look at the patterns, whether you choose to employ that because that helps you make a better story or whether you go, you know what? I'm going to consciously go off that pattern because I think it is making my script formula that's great, but it's sort of a, 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 a chance to know it, right? But, but there's, there's also another interesting overlay on this. Mm -hmm. um, I work with a friend who's a stand-up comic, and we would, we're putting the finishing touches on a piece of interactive software to teach people how to write jokes. Mm -hmm. We can teach people to write jokes. There's a way to do that. Um, Jeffrey teaches screenwriting. And the thing we always talk about is, can you really teach something that's creative? And the answer is yes and no. And I'm sure you found the same thing. We can teach craft. Mm -hmm. We can't teach talent. But sometimes if you keep honing and honing and honing your craft, you become more talented. I've seen that. You can improve mm -hmm. and you can see things. Um, and the, I will not weigh in on is it born, not made, mm -hmm. you know, all of those. You know, in comedy, there's a whole thing of, you know, you can't, you can't, if you're not born funny, you can't be funny. No, you can certainly learn to be funnier, mm -hmm. and you can improve your skills. Um, by the same token, Elliot Schoenman, who was the, uh, he was the uh, showrunner for Home Improvement for a long time, told us a story. He said, now, spoiler alert, it's in the book, so <laughs> it's 350 pages long, and you're going to lose uh, close to a paragraph. <laughs> I apologize. But he said, um, my father committed suicide. So years ago, I went back to New York, got my sister, and we took the cab ride from his office to the bridge where he jumped. So we're sitting in that car, and that, and that cab, and you can't imagine a heavier, more emotional moment. And I started thinking, my father was a German Jew and really cheap. I wonder how much he tipped the cab driver on the way to his own suit. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. So, you know, what you're seeing is there are people who have learned to look at the world in a very, very different way. Sure. And one of the things that kept coming out in in the book was people talking about uh, a lot of talk in there about rooms and, and the way they work and one of the things we know about people who write comedy is there's kind of two kinds there are two kinds of folks you can have some of both but clearly some people are better joke guys and some people are better story guys and it's just the way they work one of the things we were surprised at is about probably a quarter of the people who, uh, who we interviewed in the book and these were you know heavyweight writers had graduate degrees in math and science. Huh. Right. Wow. Wow. And, Why do you think? And, and interestingly, they were all story guys. Do you think, again, it's, it's that sort Organization, of... Organization, right. structure, mm -hmm. they went for that. But I, like, I, I think what's, what's interesting about your, your cab driver suicide <laughs> example is, I think what you're trying to say is, as far as talent goes, 
that is how this guy thinks, right? He's always thinking comedy, right? And you have to get your brain thinking that way. You know, again, it's a chicken and egg question. Right. Some people just kind of see the world, you know, they ask those kinds of questions all the time. And, I mean, I remember one time a, a friend of mine who had just had a baby say, am I weird? I was standing holding my infant on a street corner and a bus came by and I thought, you know, wouldn't it be weird if I threw the baby under the bus? Am I crazy? And I said, well, did you have any intention of doing it? Oh, no. It's just the thought came to me. Oh, God. And people have weird thoughts like that. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, what happens if I jump from here? What happens if I, you know, we have weird thoughts like that. We don't act on them. We don't do them. It becomes, it becomes the impetus for story, the, the what if, right? Yeah. The what if the, the worst or weirdest or craziest or funniest thing happened. You remember the last time we saw each other was at uh, Script Fest, mm-hmm. and they were selling T-shirts that said what if. Right. And some people are better what-ifers. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, that's right. I did see you at Script Fest. It was what, a couple yes, years ago. You, were, yes. you guys were hanging out at the back of my class. It was so awesome. Like, yeah, look at we were, Yes, yes. <laughs> and you didn't come to ours. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> dude, I, I hit That's because there wasn't any room because it was so packed. I teach, I teach my stuff. I consult with my people and I get the heck out and, <laughs> and, and go live my life. Um, but yes, actually, it was packed. You guys did, did we, great. No, we go there begging for adulations. So <laughs> there it is. Um, you know, you you talked about you know sort of the the structure, and you mentioned like you even teach the structure of joke writing. Is there a way to to give us a, a little mini lesson about that? Are there some basic elements that people should know when structuring if, a joke? If I can start with a caveat, okay, um, which is. Stand-ups tell jokes. Um, when you're writing comedy, jokes are really tricky elements. Jeffrey is old enough. He's not here to defend himself. <laughs> Jeffrey's much older to, than you, right? Like to, uh, just to, decades. To, to when he was writing for sitcoms, he was back and he started back in the day where people used to say, okay, six jokes per page. Oh, God. And mm-hmm. they didn't have to have any, you know, Hey, look at Barbara wearing half a bikini. Ah. You know, and they, you know, it had nothing to do with the story, nothing to do with the character, but it was another ha-ha on the page. Right. And interestingly, um, Jeffrey got to study with Danny Simon, um, Neil Simon's brother. Oh, wow. Who also was instrumental in teaching Woody Allen a lot about comedy. And the first rule was always, in, in writing a script, jokes are expendable. And that if a joke doesn't serve one of two purposes, if it doesn't move the story or show a character, you do not want it in there no matter how funny it is. And the hardest thing for a comedy writer, they'll sit there with their hands saying, but it's such a good joke. And you say, yeah, but it's got to go. Because it, it kind of takes the air out of the room where it makes everything else not funny. Because your, your brain is sitting there going, what context does that have? I, I'll give you a nice analogy. Um, do you know people who make lots of puns I do. <laughs> Sometimes it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Well, you're trying to have a serious conversation, and all of a sudden they do that. Yes. Now, um, just to go a little astray, can I use the F word here? Mm, no. Well, I'm going to. <laughs> Freud. Oh, wrote, you. Oh, my gosh. Wrote, wrote a book called Jokes and Their Relation to the Unconscious. Okay. And he said, jokes are basically built on hostility. Huh. 
And it was very important for him to say, but it can't be all of it. So he said, there's also non-hostile jokes, but they're not funny. <laughs> they're clever, but they're not funny. Okay. And puns are the best example of that. You know, nobody can love me like my old tomato can. Ah. Uh, I was engaged to a girl with a wooden leg, but she broke it off. You know, you're not going to get laughs with stuff like, you know, hey, come here, listen to this one. Right. You know? and, and again, it gets tedious and annoying when you're trying to talk to somebody. Jokes have a very different characteristic. And again, especially when somebody's getting it. Mm-hmm. So. I, um, I, okay, so that's, so have to move story, have to advance character or advance story and reveal character. Well, yeah, it's usually, it's usually more character jokes. I mean, if you look at really well-written sitcoms, for mm-hmm. example, um, for me, the, the, the best-written sitcom I think I've ever seen uh, is Big Bang. Hmm. And those characters are so well-drawn out. And any time you need a joke, it's there. Because something in one of their characteristics is going to fit it. That's true. Um, Elliot Shulman, again, was telling us that um, one of the shows he wrote on back in, I think, the 70s was Maud. And he said, the Maud writer's room was right next to the All in the Family writer's room. Oh, my God. And he said, the, the All in the Family guys had such an easy job because they had characters with so many traits that they were so easy to do. He said, Maud was, like, clever, and the characters weren't drawn to be funny, so they'd have to sit there, you know, until 7, 8 o'clock at night says the, the All in the Family guys left at five every night. Huh. And if they couldn't think of a joke, it was like um, you, you, give, um, you give Archie a line and, you know, you know Malaprop would do. Um, I, uh, I think I might have a hynia. I better see a groinecologist. <laughs> you know? And all of a sudden, boom, you got a joke. Right. You couldn't do that with Maud. Right. And so it showed his character. It, it did the work. Yeah, she was all about uh, the choices that were made in a situation. So you had to create a situation, and then it would be a very mod moment where she would take the, the most extreme liberal uh, point of view or something like that, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, again, um, so much of it is craft in comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first thing that you learn how to do when you become a writer is how to switch jokes. And that's like an invaluable skill. What do you mean by that? Um... I'll give you a simple one. Guy goes to a cemetery and sees a tombstone that says, here lies a lawyer and an honest man. So he goes up to the caretaker and says, hey, since when have you been burying people two at a time? (laughs) It's a light little joke. But if somebody came up to me and said, quick, I need an accountant joke. Uh I need a producer joke. I need an agent joke. Ah. You just heard it. Okay. Okay. switch it. Got it. Got it. Got it. When I watch sitcoms, I can tell you the origins of the jokes. Really? Does I that ruin sitcoms for you? No, no. It's, it's fun to watch somebody who's good at their craft. Because if they do a good job... You know, I was thinking back to one of the oldest historic jokes was uh, back in the radio era with Jack Benny. Uh-huh. You know, Jack Benny had a character of being very, very cheap. And the most famous moment, he's in a dark alley, and a guy comes up to him and says, Your money or your life? And then the longest radio pause in history. <laughs> and they said, I said, you're, hey, I'm thinking. <laughs> now, um, on, uh, I, I saw that joke on Big Bang. Uh, I saw it on Roseanne. Uh, Roseanne 
had her first two kids with natural childbirth, and it was really painful. Uh-huh. So she went to her, her obstetrician and said, what about drugs this time? <sighs> you know, with your weight, I uh, could possibly have complications. What do you want to do? Big pause. Long pause? Mm-hmm. What do you, I'm thinking. <laughs> so, I mean, you see those same things over and over again because... You know, it's like you never go to a comedy writer and say, have I got a joke for you? Because they know every old joke. And they're, they're really good at fitting them in artfully to, to be able to do that. Now, you know, I'm looking at, at this list here. I mean, Saturday Night Live, Frasier, The Simpsons, Everybody Loves Raymond, Monk, Modern Family, The Honeymooners, Cheers, Home Improvement, and the things you've talked about, um, All in the Family, for example, I Love Lucy. There's certain things about all of these shows not are they not only are they timeless but it would be hard not to suggest that somebody who wants to write contemporary comedy not go back and at least dip in and watch a couple of episodes from all of these things because it is great just just off the cuff just quick sharp in the moment comedy don't you think when you're talking to a young screenwriter mm-hmm. and you say well you know in Citizen Kane, they, what? <laughs> like, what do you say? Right. And, you know, there are just certain, like you need to know the history of your craft because when you're a musician, there's a reason why you study Bach and Mozart. And I think it's okay to, to just dip in. You don't have to study every single season. You don't have to study the why. Hmm. You, you sort of get a sense of you get timing. The essence. You get the essence yes, the of essence it, of it. Definitely. And it has a certain rhythm, mm-hmm. a certain cadence. Yes. What, uh, out of all of these, if you were going to say to one, a new comedy writer, and you could pick one movie and one TV show, what would it be? What would you say? I never answer those questions. I'm so sorry. You've been so nice to me. But I can give you 30, but I could never give you one because I'm a fan. And... You know, how do you, how do you compare stuff? It's like, well, what's the best movie ever made? Right. You know, well, uh, what do you like? Dude, <laughs> what I, entertains I you? totally understand because I never answer those questions either. Yeah, yeah. and you know, the structures are so different. Yeah. And, you know, is, uh, and even, you know, when you're defining comedy, is Orange the, the New Black, is that a comedy? Was Weeds a comedy? Mm-hmm. You know. Right, right, exactly. Is Breaking Bad a comedy? Well, you know, <laughs> depends how dark you want to go. <laughs> no. I have to uh, ask you about um, what we talked about right up front, which is writer's block, because there are some people who have been listening to this whole thing just waiting for you to get there because they are huddled in a corner right now and, uh, and they haven't been able to write and they need an answer. So going back to your psychologist uh, days, we need an answer. No, I don't know what to say. What, what Peter? Um, <laughs> Peter, give, um, give, give, a, give a writer who feels that they can't start, okay? They can't even put their butt in the chair and start. They're too scared to do that. What do you want to say first? And you've got to kiss that mic or you're getting me in trouble. But I'm not using my tongue. Okay. <laughs> there was a huge study on creativity done at UC Berkeley years ago. And they came out, and they did not just artists, but, you know, the best architects, the best doctors, the best scientists, the best painters, everything. And they came up with two overall findings. Oh, you want to know what they are? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I thought it was enough just to know there were two. (laughs) One was 
creative people have the ability to tolerate ambiguity. Okay. And two, the more important one for writers, they have the ability to suspend judgment. Okay. The thing that kills writers right away is they write something, they look at it and say, oh, that's crap. That's no ah. good. And you know, just get something down on the page. That's mm-hmm. why God made editing. Mm-hmm. You know, you look back on that great uh, Hemingway quote, write drunk, edit sober. You know, it's just, the trick is to get something down and not judge it. Because you're going to, I mean, have you ever had a finished work that you wrote without editing it? Just It just came out? Uh, I've had two children, but that's, <laughs> other than that, no. Yeah, I mean, it just, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And people get very down on themselves and, you know, they look at a great work and they look at what they've just written and say, that's not great. Mm-hmm. No, it's not great. It's a start. Right. And learning not to judge is the hugest part of doing it. And it takes a really long time to get the confidence to not judge yourself. Yeah, I've watched people analyze themselves right out of writing anything. Yes, but if I do that, this. And it doesn't make sense that they would do this. And it's like I'm always kind of saying, let somebody else be judgy with your work, you know, or, or say it doesn't make sense. Write it so that it does make sense, you know? And then you go back and you say, all right, let me solve this problem now. Right. You know, I remember interviewing a writer years and years ago. This is like pre-computer. And he said, when I, when I write myself into a corner, I take the last two pages I wrote and I tear them up without even looking at them. Because no matter how brilliant they might have been, they got me into this corner. Oh, that's interesting. So maybe it's, it's a new choice kind of thing. It was the choice before that got you there. Yeah. That's, you think it's the current thing, but you blocked yourself back here and you didn't see it. That's a great tip for people who get stuck in the middle. Because suddenly they, they were on a flow, and it was all so great. It's not like they can't write. It's just that suddenly they, they, they're, like you said, they're in a corner. So get out of there. But I'll, I'll give you one more tip for people that have that kind of difficulty. For openers, um, two kinds of folks. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's an old line, there are only two kinds of people, those who think there are two kinds of people and those who don't. <laughs> um, but people that have trouble that way usually either have trouble getting started or they get started but they can't stay very long at the task. And the, the solution is kind of the same. Give yourself a time limit, a short one, where you'll do it every day. Uh, permit me to tell you another in a series of boring stories. <laughs> um, but I'll say this as a psychologist now. Um, but I hope that your audience doesn't feel compelled to send me a check for... And by saying you hope that they don't, it's <laughs> exactly. make it out to uh, Peter. I, I was, I had a, uh, a guy that I was seeing who's an attorney. <laughs> and he was saying one day, you know, my files are really disorganized. And it's really cutting into my business now. So I fell into the trap of, well, why don't you organize them? He said, <laughs> it would take too long. <laughs> really, how long do you think it'll take? said, at least 40 man hours. I just don't have the time. I said, do me a favor. Let's try an experiment. Work on it for 15 minutes a day. Do you have the 15 minutes a day? Oh, yeah, but it's not going to do any good. I said, just try it. And besides, it's just a waste of time. I said, do me a favor. Do it for a week. And at least you'll earn the right to come back and say, I told you so. Huh, which lawyers really like to do. And he came back next week and said, my files are done. Oh, wow. How long did it take you? Three and a half hours. Wow. Now, one of the interesting things is that people don't like to do aversive things. That's why God made procrastination and and avoidance. And so 
what happens is we tend to magnify the odiousness, the effortfulness of a task. And when we make the mountain big enough, then why bother? You're not going to climb it. And when you start chipping away, all of a sudden you bring that back into reality and say, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. You know what? You may just have solved an email problem for me. Thank you very much, Peter. I appreciate it. You can pay me. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Damn it. You were well, so close. I know. You were so close. So where can people buy Now That's Funny, authored by Peter Desberg and Jeffrey Davis? Easiest way. Remember, the richest man in the world now is Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. He owns Amazon. Mm-hmm. Amazon is easy, or you can go to Square One, but I'd go right to Amazon. Excellent. Excellent. Everybody buy this book. I mean, really, if you're a writer, it just sounds like uh, you're, you get to peer into the mind of these creators as they're figuring something out. You what a valuable yeah. book. And, you know, one of the cool things is that uh, a bunch of colleges now, uh, writing programs, have, you know, textbooks are 150 bucks. <laughs> Uh, this is a you know $15 book, and it's a way better textbook. It, you see, one of the things, uh, just in, in closing, um, we have a problem with writing books sometimes. You know, Save the Cat is wonderful, McKee is wonderful, all my own guys are great, but there's this sort of view of here's the way you write something. Right. And when you see 24 sets of people doing it totally differently, and coming at it from totally different ways. And you're seeing how they do it. And you're seeing the methodology. And they're explaining why they're solving problems and how. It just gives you a whole different insight into the writing process. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Everybody get this book. It sounds it sounds great. And I really appreciate you being here. Explaining jokes and, uh, and writer's block and all kinds of things. So... Thank you. As usual, nothing but fun. <laughs> I want to tell everybody uh, a couple of things that are going on at, on the page. We've actually created a Patreon page, finally. It only took 10 years. Uh, but what Patreon lets you do is contribute to the show, just like you're sending a regular donation, but at different uh, money increments, you get different things. So let's say you do $5 a a month, then um, you can go to a site where all of the handouts mentioned on this show, and we do mention a lot of them, are automatically posted for you. So you don't have to write in for me. You just go and go, oh, there was another handout mentioned on the show. There it is. Uh, for $10 a month, um, I'm going to be doing a Q&A video. So all those questions that you have, I'll be answering them for $10 a month. And then there's, there's other tiers as well. So check it out and see if that's a way that you'd like to support the show. Um, so patreon.com and I believe it's like a, a slash and on the page, something like that. If not, there should be a link on my website under the, the podcast, uh, site. Also go to on the in general. Uh, the TV class will be August 20th. Recorded versions of it are on the site as well. And, um, I forget where I'm traveling next. Seattle will be over by that time. But, oh, yeah, the London Screenwriters Festival in September. So check that out as well. <sighs> I think that's all the pitching that I can do. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot that, of pitching. That's a lot. Oh, my God. And it goes on and on and on. Just the commercial of on the page. But, um, but you know, that's, that's, that's what everybody what has do. to listen to at the end of the show. <laughs> Thanks again to Peter for being here. Peter Desberg, he was awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and have a good writing week. 